0: Hey, I'm Matthew Ma, host of the Truth About Real Estate podcast, and today we are talking with Alejandro Sita of Prosperity Lending. He is the owner of a boutique mortgage brokerage focusing on self-employed borrowers who are having trouble getting their mortgage or refinancing they need. I'm excited to talk to you, uh, Alejandro. Thanks for coming to the show.
1: Thank you, Matthew, and thank you so much for, for having me.
0: Yeah, I want to catch up with you and really learn about what you're doing, how you got into lending and like, why um, are you focusing on helping self-employed borrowers get into you know good loans?
1: I guess I'm focusing on self-employed borrowers because, because of my own personal experience. I remember many, many years ago uh, when I was in business back in 1994, uh, this is not necessarily related to real estate, but I wanted to buy a van and I had the money to buy the van. <laughs> And I remember it was such an ordeal, uh, I thought I was an exception to the rule. And then later on, you know, uh, I found out that 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 was not the exception, that this is what it is. When you are self-employed, it's a different scenario. I got into real estate actually by accident. I used to be in a marketing company and we used to do infomercials. We used to do these long television commercials, you know. Um, I sold my own product on the Home Shopping Network a couple of times. And then one of my infomercial clients one day said, Alejandro, would you like to come to a financial seminar? And this is how I ended up in,
0: in real estate. Nice. That's a good way to get into real estate. It's always someone just giving you some advice, showing you something different. And you're like, hey, this actually makes sense with you. And you find out you, you actually have a lot of fun in real estate side.
1: Yes, I did. Um, I went into real estate and I went at the beginning on loans. I just wanted to do loans. And then my broker said, you know, Alejandro, in order to do loans, you, got, you have to get a real estate license. And I went, why? I just want to do loans. He says, well, that's the law. You have to do it. So I ended up getting a real estate license. I did loans until one day my broker said, um, you speak Spanish, right? And I said, yes. And he said, would you like to make double commission? And I thought, well, why not? So he sent me to, to look. to to help this couple that wanted to buy a a condo the first time home. And he said, they don't have an agent representing them. You can can have the agent commission and you can have the loan commission. And I was so lucky to have a wonderful lady at the other end of the transaction. That was my first transaction back in 2006. Uh, She was such a beautiful listing agent. I had so much fun with her. Then, Then I decided, you know, maybe I should pay a little bit more attention to this real estate side.
0: Yeah, because in, yeah, I used to be a real estate agent and a lender too. And it's kind of fun because you can actually do both and you get to help clients, but at the same time, over time it gets difficult managing both sides of things because you're really focused on learning two different industries and in the sense of like financial industry learning all the numbers what's going on and managing that side and then you have the whole real estate sales side as well and knowing the market and knowing that so over time you know you start progressing to see what you really like and for me I ended up doing full-time real estate sales and investing and for you you mentioned too you got into more lending side of things
1: yes and you, 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 you're totally correct about that at the beginning, if you only have a few transactions here and there, you may manage doing both, but after a while you, you have to you have to define what is your niche and as you mentioned, Matthew, there are so many niches in real estate you know you have residential, you have commercial lending, listing buying you can you can do syndication like I understand that you, you you're a syndicator and that's yeah. a totally different sphere. you can also raise money you know for uh, for projects and not necessarily do all the syndication part just work on the syndic- on raising money for a while i i worked for a hedge fund raising money for real estate so but like you said after doing a bunch of different things i, I realized that lending is what i feel more comfortable
0: and that's why i decided to specialize on that Nice, yeah, definitely because even in real estate like the, the syndication side for me is an, like for me is the next journey part of okay how do you go bigger how do you go to 200 300 units and how do you build that passive investing and how do you help clients uh, create that financial freedom so that's another challenge to do um, for you when you got into lending too, you know did you start off with residential did you ch- take take a look at commercial and then how did you f- get to uh, focus on self-employed like are you doing doctor programs too?
1: um when you may when you say doctor programs you mean yeah, like doctor like, loans
0: they call it doctor loans here
1: okay um you know i understand that a doctor can just go to chase bank for instance and they, they are going to give him pretty much 100 percent financing so mm-hmm. if you are a doctor uh probably you won't be talking to me you will be just talking to chase bank but so we haven't done really many doctor programs but um, um to answer your question I decided to go into lending because I decided to go into residential lending at the beginning because at the beginning I didn't know anything, and that's what was available to me. So I took it. I used to I used to publish a small article on a on a on a print uh, on a print newsletter, mm-hmm. and that's how I used to get all my customers. And because of working with them, I ended up doing some some commercial lending too. But you know, after that, after having done a few commercial uh, loans. I can tell you that personally, I prefer a residential loan. Because when you do a commercial loan, at least for me, it's very competitive. Uh, you might find it takes a long time to find the the, the the correct product. And once you find it, I notice that the borrower may very quickly switch to another program or to another lending just for a very minute difference. Mm-hmm. That doesn't happen in residential lending. In residential lending, Usually, when people come to me, I'm sort of their last resort. So, I don't have to fight for every one eighth of a point. You know, I don't have to be the most. I the, don't. The, I don't have to be the cheapest. But in commercial lending, it's extremely competitive, and there. And then there are other other considerations that matter. You know like a a syndicator like yourself, maybe looking at cash flow, maybe looking at some tax savings, maybe looking at divorcing the impounds, you know, and there are a lot of other factors that play, that take into consideration, but to, to make a long story short, commercial lending is a lot of work. You have to really devote yourself. You have to put a lot of hours and there is, unless you have a contract, some commercial lenders have a very tight contract that if you find a product, you need to get paid, but most commercial lenders don't have that, and you end, up, you end up spending your wheels for if you say, if you have like 10 loan requests, you may finance two or three. Not because you didn't find the program, it's because people changed their minds. Yeah, exactly. And that,
0: that's, that doesn't happen in residential. Yeah, I find residential to be a lot more easier. It's like, you know, really quick and easy. You understand what clients need. They need to buy a home. They need to go upsize, downsize, relocate. They know what they want. And now they're just looking for great service along with great terms and great rate. And then one of the focuses of the residential side that you, you're taking a look at is the self-employed side. Yes. So tell me more about the self-employed side of uh, lending.
1: The self-employed side is always a shock to a self-employed employed person. Uh, this is what I've seen over and over, including myself. You are a self-employed borrower. You have a business. You've been doing it for a while. You found your niche. You're making money. You think you're doing well. You're paying your bills. You have savings. You have a good lifestyle. And then one day you you decide to either refinance your home or buy a new home for your daughter or some for someone on the family or expand. You know, you decide. Hey, you know, I should build more uh, passive income. Maybe I should buy something in real estate. So the first thing you do as a self-employed borrower, as a successful self-employed borrower, you go to your bank, to your trusted bank who sometimes you've had a customer who banked on that bank for 20 years. So they know everything about you. They know your cash flow. They know what you spend your money on. And you say very simply, hey, I want to buy this house, which you know you can afford. It's not even that expensive. The lender says yes, no problem. You know, you are our favorite customer. You've been here for twenty years. Please fill this piece of paper, and you just go away, and you think that the deal is done. Then you find out that the your account executive calls you and says, you know, Alejandro, you know, uh, remember that uh, you know we ran your credit, and it, you know this is not going to work on this program. Let me try this other program. And this thing keeps going on and on and on. A week goes by, two weeks go by, you send paperwork, nothing is happening. And then one day you get a call or an email from your account executive saying that you don't qualify. And you go, what? Are you joking? And he mentions something that to you is completely irrelevant. He says, oh, well, you have 679 and we require a 680 credit score. And you go, so what? I've been a client With you for 20 years you know my finances you know that i can afford the home and they say well sorry it's not up to me and they give a long excuse Mm -hmm. that is i would say the typical experience experience of a self-employed borrower
0: yeah i agree That is a
1: typical experience.
0: It is. And I think, you know, for the, the, it's hard because, like, you know, when you go into business, like, you're actually creating opportunity. You're creating, you're becoming an owner and you're actually creating jobs too when you start growing. And then to see a lending company say, or bank say, oh, we can't give you a loan. And oh, are we gonna charge you a lot more because uh, you're you're a higher risk, even though you've been profitable for years? Is this higher risk because you're a small, you know, startup, mom and pop, and you're growing? And then you know they ask you for a lot more documentation too, which makes it more difficult. Like you're putting me through ex- so much extra work to prove what I already have been doing, but I understand the risk analysis to it. But at the same time, it just makes it frustrating for um, self-employed work borrowers.
1: Yeah, but even even when you do all that, <clears throat> they still deny you. <laughs> and, they, and, and it's not only that. It's not they say, you know, Matthew, you, you you don't qualify for this loan. But there is no solution either. They don't say, hey, you know, if you do this and this and this, we will reconsider or you will qualify or you can change this. So there is no solution. There is no path. It's just, I'm sorry, we can't do it. Yeah. Now, if you go to the traditional mortgage broker, um, usually what I found out from what customers tell me is that they're not willing to spend the extra time to solve these few issues here and there. You know, sometimes it takes about, in my experience, it takes about two months to qualify a business owner for him to be ready to apply. Uh, my, my worst, or my longest, I should say, no my worst, was I started with a business owner in May of last year, and he was able to close in December, yeah because he had a few issues. they were not terrible issues. they just needed to be handled. and usually the business owner is very busy. He's doing other things, you know he he's usually I notice that business owners are not good at, at at actually collecting paperwork, do image processing. you know they they send you a print screen from their computer, and it's hard to tell them, you know the print screen from the computer is not going to do. It. We need a full PDF file with all the pages. but all the pages are blank. I say, I know, but we need if it says page one or four. At two or four, Mm -hmm. even if page number three and number four are empty, we need them. You know, these little things to them are a waste of time. And I, I understand why. And I agree with them. They are a waste of time. And they usually don't understand the workings of a credit report. And I'll tell you a very quick story. I have a customer, my best customer, whom I met in 2005. He has millions and millions of dollars in the bank. His credit report is page after page after page of close paid loans he has about 40 paid loans on time he has a couple of other things that are not so good which is typically typical of the business owner however his score is lesser than another borrower that had a young girl who has little credit has only had it for a few years but in her case she only has two or three credit cards with a very high limit that she has barely used so when you compare these things, uh, when you see how the algorithms are done, the algorithms don't benefit the business owner. Here you have a guy that has been 20 years in business, has 40 paid loans. Here you have a younger borrower who has very little experience, uh, has m- many, many lesser credit lines, and she has like in the 800s compared to this other guy that is in the 600s. How, how, and then I tried to sell it to the lender. I said, look. This is an experienced guy. This is an experienced real estate investor. He has 40 paid loans. He's buying a home for which he has many, many times over the amount of cash in the bank already. However, that guy faces more hurdles than the younger borrower who has a salary, who has a few trade trade lines that she has barely used. See what I mean?
0: Yeah, it exactly. Becomes,
1: it becomes very frustrating. And then uh, uh, my job becomes more of a psychologist rather than a lender because I have to... Really hear what the customer's frustration is. I have to really listen to it because if you don't listen to it, the frustration doesn't go away. If the frustration doesn't go away, then the person doesn't do the actions that you need him, him or her to do in order to qualify.
0: Yeah. And that's why, for example, you know, there's some lenders out there that take the easiest route because they know, for example, a W2 borrower is so much easier. You got, you know, income, you got expenses. Maybe a car loan, maybe a school loan, and pretty much that's about it. Maybe a house, and just quick. But when you start getting to self-employed, then you're opening up a can of worms in a sense because you're working with all these different You know, income expenses, tracking, uh, billing, and trying to help them update the PLs, which people are busy doing their business. They might not always have fully up to date. And the frustrating part, too, is in a refinance in today's market that might take 60 days, you might the underwriter, not you, might ask you for two or three uh, PLs, balance statements over that time period and says, Well, I need the next month, the next month, the next month. Even though the lender was the one who's delaying the time to close, they're asking for more work. So then it takes time for that owner to keep. Updating everything. And that you don't so, know how that, many line items they have per you know transactions, right? Throughout a month.
1: That is so true. And then the and then the borrower gets upset because he says, Well, I already sent you this. Yeah. I said, Yes, but that was a month ago. Now the lender wants the yeah, data one for this month. <laughs> and he goes gone and on and on and on. So Matthew, you you understand it very well.
0: <laughs> yeah, I I do. I work with a lot of lenders and I, like we go through all these things for a lot of our clients. And you know, we try the best thing is when you work with a great lender who knows how to package it properly and do everything they can up front to make it simpler and faster for the underwriter to understand the whole story that's the worst thing is when the lender doesn't put that work in and just becomes a male male person to to the underwriter and then they don't look at it and says well hey there's some big um, trade items on these lines. So why is that? Like, can you provide extra additional proof? Like, okay, was well, it a real estate sale? You got a commission. You did a big sale where you uh, paid something off that was huge. You know, they're gonna ask you about that and to show paper trails or everything. It starts adding up. Because you start thinking, okay, well, besides all the basic line items of you know, your bank statements, mortgage statements, your insurance, your um, W-2s, your taxes for the last two years, now I need, as a self-employed, I need your P&Ls, I need your balance statements. Luckily, it's unaudited uh, for the most part, so that makes it easier. But during that time period on a refi, you're going to say, well, how much time am I putting to do this? And is it worth it? And then is there any additional paper trails you need to provide?
1: I know you're, you're you're totally correct. And then the other thing that um, some, sometimes we don't realize is the underwriters are being crammed. You know, the underwriters only have a few seconds to look at what you send them. Mm-hmm. So you have to do it like baby food. They have to be able to see it, understand it, and done. Because if they have to think, thinking, by the way, I mean, this goes against the grain. This goes against what you as a borrower would, would believe takes place. But anytime you invoke thinking or open the door to thinking, That's the time when you get problems. So you have to package it. You have to package it like baby food and you have to send it in there with their boxes and their paperwork. So it just flies through the system. If it doesn't fly through the system, it's going to get rejected.
0: Yeah. And one of the things I learned too throughout uh, being a lender before too was what I actually did was actually when I saw their transactions, I, sometimes I would ha- I would circle the line items. Like, Is this 10,000 or more? And I would say number one and I would put an appendix to it and show out number one to 20 of all these LOEs, all these line items that explain what they are in proof documentation. But when doing that upfront, the underwriter would just review, it, understand it. And so actually this all makes sense. I understand the full story of your borrower, and here you go. It's proof with some just pending, um, you know, uh, final documents to close. I'm like, wow, that's pretty good. But it's yeah. explaining that to a borrower, a self-employed borrower, saying, "Hey, as a self-employed borrower, we're going to have to go through extra steps to help you get a loan, to help you refinance." Just understand that, and you're here to help them.
1: Yes, and and the reason for that, uh, if I may, this is one of the questions that you had asked me before. Why it's like that is because <laughs> in the old times. You had your local lender. This is how I grew up. You know, when I grew up in Chile, I had my local lender. I always banked at the bank. Any problem that I had, I wouldn't talk to him. He knew my whole life. He knew what I spent the money on because he looked at my checking account. So whenever I needed money, if ever I needed money, I could call him and say, hey, you know, I need a, a loan for this and I'm going to pay you in two or three weeks. He, was, he would look at his computer. He would say, hey, you know, that's fine. Come to the branch, sign the paperwork, and the loan is done. However they opted for an automated system. And the automated system has worked great for what you were saying, like, like, the, like the W2 employee. If you mm-hmm. are a W2 employee, the lending in- industry, the, the credit scoring industry is built for you. You can go to a website, you can do it online, you can do it with a minimal amount of paperwork and motions, but everyone else is gonna fall through the cracks. The lending industry, in my personal opinion, doesn't care because ninety percent or more than ninety percent of people are W two employees. So they make so much money and the business is so great that what if five, six, or ten percent of the borrowers fall through the cracks? It doesn't matter to them. That's, in my opinion, why. And the other thing that is hard to convey sometimes is the credit score does not reflect your 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 business savviness. Doesn't reflect how "Quote unquote, good you are." This is this is was a shock to me. The credit score really was invented by people that wanted to put money out to to basically um, uh, how you say this to to like a sieve to go through a sieve and only get and select only the borrowers that we're going to produce the highest monthly return. Because most of this capital, most of this money for lending comes from people seeking a monthly return. So it's like a gigantic ocean of money that just wants a monthly return. Mm -hmm. And there is a specific profile of people that will give you the monthly return. And that is what the FICO system is designed to do. I've always heard it before, you know, oh, if you pay your bills on time, your FICO will be high. But that is not true either. That's a very general statement. You can pay your bills bills on time and really not even have a credit score. So the credit score is designed to single out those individuals that are going to produce the highest return to the investor. That is really the purpose of the credit score. So that's why there is a disconnect between a self-employed, successful individual and an investor, because the successful individual, and probably you you will agree with me, Matthew, Mm -hmm. successful business people work on cash flow. Cash flow yeah. to them is what they look for. When they, when they make a decision about paying a bill or not paying a bill, they're not thinking, oh, I'm going to be late, I'm going to be on time. They're thinking, does this decision maximizes my cash flow? Can I use my cash flow on something else that produces more of a return? So for, for a person thinking like that, if they have to not pay a bill this month because it's more advantageous to do something else, they would. They know they're going to pay it. They don't mind paying the late fee, but mm-hmm. to them it's a business decision. However, those types of decisions would penalize him or her from a FICO point of view. Yeah. I
0: agree. I, I definitely uh seen that and understand it too. And I realized it. So like what I started doing for my investor group and my clients in real estate sales, like teaching the self employed people, like think about okay, I understand what you're doing. You're doing great in your business, but think about this. Whatever you're doing in your business, you gotta look two years ahead because we know in the lending industry they look two years behind. So always making sure that your income is always growing year over year. So you don't get a hit with a negative income where it went less, even like a thousand dollars less. Like if goes down it hurts you so your income always has to be scaling up so even though you want to spend grow pay things late because interest wise in the rate of return makes more sense to you for our business for the lending perspective actually hurts against you so let's talk about that and if you're under you want to understand that work with your cpa on it but really look at your PLs, your balance statements and make sure that year over year you're always growing your income level and your expenses are less than so your net is growing but at the same time how do you balance that with scaling your business and it gets tough so they have to kind of be more mindful of it and i say hey to be honest we should be looking at your business quarterly and focusing on those goals especially when you're buying and investing in real estate at a high level you're constantly doing it if you're buying one house great go for two years get it all perfect buy the house and be done with it and go back to your business routes but you know if you want to invest in real estate then that's something to consider
1: Yes, yes. And for, and for investors, one, one tip I can give you, which I discovered by accident. Actually, I discovered it because my best client, the one that I was telling you about, asked me to do a refinance. He has like 40 properties, by the way. Yeah. He asked me to refinance one of his properties in, 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 in Bakersfield. And he, in this case, he could use tax returns. And I always encourage people to use tax returns because you get a slightly lower rate. Mm-hmm. Although his tax return is 150 pages, <laughs> you really have to go through it. But anyhow, we use a tax return. And then we don't do a lot of regular, what I call regular loans, you know, the W-2 loans. But in this case, we did it. We did it through Fannie Mae because this is what everybody does. And Fannie Mae required a 25% equity on the property. So they would only do up to 75% loan-to-value. Yeah. And then digging into the programs, I found out that Freddie Mac, even though, you know, people say Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, and they, they, they make... They don't make a a distinction. There is a distinction. For instance, for syndicators, business people, if you use Freddie Mac, Freddie Mac, they may change this rule, but as of now, they will go all the way to 80% Mm loan-to-value instead of 75%. Another good thing for Freddie Mac, for self-employed people, is for many people, 2021 was a very good year. For many people, it was a bad year because of COVID and all of that. But for many people, it was a good year. If you've been in business for five years, Freddie Mac has a program where you only need to use one year of tax return. So if 2021 was good, you can use only 2021, and they will go up to 80% LTV on a refinance. So that's a little thing that would could benefit investors, people that are in real estate, and self-employed people too.
0: Nice, I like that. Let's talk about this. Let's talk about the different kinds of loans that are actually available to self-employed borrowers and dive a little more deeper.
1: Yes. Usually when uh, the self-employment comes to me, they say, Alejandro, I need a loan, but I can't qualify because my tax return, I take so many deductions and they're so complicated that simply the income is not there. So there are many ways to do this. Aside from using your tax returns, you can use bank statements. Now, bank statements, it's a whole universe unto itself because you have personal bank statements, you have business bank statements, you have bank statements program that only look at one year, you have those that look at two years, you know? So within the universe of the bank statement, you have about six or seven ways that you can combine the bank statements and present them on a package to make you qualify on the loan. So that's that returns, the universe of bank statements. Now you have profit and losses. If you've been in business for a while and your business is is, is incorporated, and the good thing is it doesn't have to be audited like you were mentioning. You can have your CPA, your licensed CPA, he has to be a licensed CPA, prepare an audited profit and loss. And we can go off of the profit and loss. Or if you're an investor and most of your money is passive income, you, you don't have a job per se, then we can go off of your reserves or off of your, um, off of your investments. So we can do the tax return, bank statements, whole universe right there. We can use profit and losses certified by your licensed CPA. And we can also use your assets. They call it as asset depletion. And that, that um, asset depletion group is also whole universe unto itself because there are many things you can do within it. Like, for instance, I'll give you a very quick, easy one. If you want to buy a million dollar property and you have a $2 million in the bank, the loan is done. If you have twice as much as the purchase price, the loan is done. There are a few more other things to do, but that's another program within the, within the asset category
0: nice yeah exactly so
1: so in a nutshell you have tax return bank statements Mm -hmm. profit and loss or asset depletion and within each one of those you have like different subsections
0: one of the things i would say too is that not all banks not all mortgage brokers are the same and equal i would advise like um you know clients who are looking to get a loan is actually to speak to many different people because each company has their own different programs not all programs are exactly identical and there's little trade-off little uh, additional online items and you really have to understand and educate yourself as a borrower to see who's the best lender for you and your self-employed criteria because once you start learning about that these banks these programs these brokers They have to really understand who you are, what you're doing, and find the best product program for you. And just because they have that doesn't mean their program is actually the best throughout the industry. And that takes time for the investor to do it. And that comes down to trust and relationships too because you can ask your lender, hey, is this the best program for me within your company or is this the best program you think for me out there? Some will actually say, "Well, I know there's actually some better ones that might work for you. Maybe I'll refer you over there to help you." Some say, "Well, it's best for my for me to help you," and that's about it. But I even see rates fluctuate, um, you know, between eighth to over a third difference, uh, just because going to a, to the right lender. And that's a consideration too. And for me, I look at experience too of lenders. I look at, okay, you know, I used to be a lender, so I'm going to ask you these things to help my clients. And, you know, how well do you really understand it? And is the program that you're doing the best program for based on their scenario and find out Um, over time too? There's also relationship banking too. Relationship banking can also be a big part of um, self employed borrowers. Yes,
1: I, I found out from what I've seen that relationship in banking, that the old style that I was describing when I was growing up mm-hmm. only works if you if you are like if you are at the 10 million dollar plus mark. Um, this I could be wrong, but this is what I've noticed that mm-hmm. if you have less than that, then your bank or your, or your traditional bank won't assign you won't really give you to relationship banking because a lot of people talk about relationship banking, Mm -hmm. but relationship banking, meaning that you have one executive that knows everything about you and has the authority to give you a loan that only comes at a certain level.
0: Um, apart, apart. So some places, but for us in the Bay Area, the relationship banking that I see actually, you can have a bank. You can even move over to a brand new bank like First Republic, like Chase, uh, private clients. Um, some of them will actually give you a lower rate, and it goes to multiple basis of uh items. But for example, if you are refinancing or doing a purchase and you have post closing money, which some people do, but if you had like two fifty, five hundred, or a million afterwards and you reserved it in your reserves in your checking account uh for like a year year and a half then they're Mm -hmm. going to give you a lower rate and some of these rates are phenomenal and people don't know that because they never asked about it and you have to find the right people and understand the different programs but like i see even today's market when the rates are like 3.375 to um higher or higher then you can see some of these relationship rates are like way lower so like wow good to know, good to ask, good to see if i qualify and what do you need to qualify and if i those for example the a plus papers who meet those criteria it makes total sense but you know without asking they would never know about that
1: that is totally correct if you can mm-hmm. qualify for those programs you definitely should go for it and another thing that i would like to mention is most people view a loan as a as a as a as a package that is unchanging yeah. however within the loan there are many many pieces that you can move I've noticed that some brokers are afraid of moving these parts because then you can generate fees. But for the right customer and for the right circumstances, I think you need to delve in and move those pieces, you know, like, for instance, discount points. Many people are, are, are like surprised when I tell them, you know what, you can buy a little bit of a discount point and then we can meet your target. And they go, what is a discount point? I said, discount mm-hmm. point is what you pay the lender to give you a lower rate. And they go, oh, can I do that? I say, yes, you can. Mm-hmm. And they say, well, how come nobody told me? Things like that, things like borrower paid compensation, meaning that instead of the lender paying you, the borrower pays you. And people say, well, but what about the no points loan? And I say, yes, mm-hmm. no points doesn't mean that there are no points. It means that you're paying a higher rate for the lender to pay your broker. Yeah. But if you decide to pay your broker, now you can get a, a lower rate. You know. Now, there is a lot of misunderstandings there because you as a mortgage broker cannot advise that on the expectation of, uh, of that you're going to receive more money. But we we work that in such a way that we make the same. Whether the person chooses borrower paid compensation or lender paid compensation, it doesn't change what we get. And I'm always upfront with people and I tell them, look, you can go this route or you can go that route.
0: Yeah, so, I think the understanding to that too is like what when I ask and uh, talk to my clients and lenders is that okay? For example, can you show us a no point, no fee loan on this? And then the second question I ask: if we were to pay additional points in um, a couple of basis points in, what? Is the difference and what's the break-even point to do that? If it's six months, eighteen months, it makes sense because you're probably gonna live there more than that. But if it starts becoming five to seven years, then the question is, are you gonna live there that long? Are you gonna refinance within that time period? What's the market gonna do? And does it make sense for you? Some say yes, some say no.
1: Correct. I totally agree with you. Um, there are some times where you you have to do that. And let me tell you a very interesting case. And you can never assume, even though I've been in this business for a while and I've done all sorts of crazy loans. You can never assume. Two weeks ago, I had a borrower who is in in the cannabis industry. He has mountains of cash, but he cannot put it on his bank account. So -hmm. his bank account balance is very small. So he wants to buy a house. His main concern is not the payment, which he doesn't care. It's not the rate, which he doesn't care. His main concern is what loan program can I use that will use the least of my bank balances? Because I don't want to spend all my bank balances on the home. And I cannot increase them because I have so much cash, I cannot just put it into the bank. Mm -hmm. So his his need was, what is the loan program with the least uh, cash balance on the bank? Not because he didn't have the money, it's because he had too much and he couldn't use it. Isn't that in, an interesting problem?
0: Yeah. It is for uh, their industry and the way they have to run their business is a little bit different. They can't go to put all their cash money into the escrow to just buy it or refinance. They have to, you know, yeah. go through a banking system.
1: Yes. So, so each borrower me. I so I noticed that each borrower has a particular need and mm-hmm. sometimes it takes a little bit of time to to get the need. And once you get the need, you need to delve in and start adjusting all the pieces of the loan, you know, to match that need.
0: Yeah, tell me more about like what do you when you start working with new clients? What do you do for self-employed borrowers and how do you get them set up to find the right loan for them? The first thing I do is just to listen to
1: them. You know, most mortgage brokers The first thing they say send me this send me this send me this I practice a non-invasive approach. The first thing I do is just listen. I just listen and I take notes Uh, I'll show you. I'm the old-fashioned way. I take notes.
0: Okay. Okay
1: So as they're telling me I'm building the loan in my mind if everything makes sense the way they told it to me, I say that it's alone. If something doesn't make sense, I don't want to put them through the trouble of send me this, send me that just to find out what I'm already detecting that doesn't make sense. So the first thing is tell me your story. It makes sense? Okay. So I see on the story two or three things that we need to check. So say, well, send me this, send me this, and send me this. Let's just mm-hmm. check that these things are in. They are? Okay. Now let's proceed. So the first thing we do is just I listen to what this scenario, and and you may think, well, what is there to listen? Is that just guys, the guy, the guy just wants a loan at the lowest rate? Well, that is not necessarily true. He may want the biggest cash flow. You know, he may want to. Uh, to, it's not usually. It's not. What I find interestingly enough of all the loans that I've done. Very, very few of them are about the rate. Very few are saying, said to me, hey, Alejandro, I want you to quote me this loan because I want to reduce from what I have it now. I, pr- I practically never get that call. I only go to once from a trusted friend who is a lawyer and he says, Alejandro, I have a very good rate. Do you think that you can do any better? That was one call in one year. Most people have a specific problem that they want to solve. So after that, I listen to the story and I get some minimum information, I build my own spreadsheet, which is not an official spreadsheet. It's just something that I built for myself. And I share them with them. I go on a Zoom call and I said, okay, we're gonna, brain, we're gonna brain, brainstorm this loan together. And I'm gonna tell you what is the lender, what is the bank looking for? And we're gonna do this together. So we do this process together. I told, tell him all of the options. Look, if you buy some discount points, this is what we can do. If you pay a little bit more, so the lender gives you credit for closing costs, this is what you can do. You can do 10% down, but you should better do 15 because if you do 15, now we're going to go slightly below the, the, the FHA limit. And now you can do this and this and that that you couldn't do before. Or I can go, you know what? I recommend that you do impound, that you, that you break the impounds, that you don't include the impounds. Why? Because let's say your payment amount is $6,000, but your payment to the bank is only 4,500 and the rest is just impounds. I say, if you take impounds, on well, your credit report is going to show that your debt is $6,000. If we break them up, it's going to be 4500. So for future loans, your DTI is going to be a lot better. Questions and decisions like that, you know? Okay, what mm-hmm. about lender paid? What about borrower paid? I have a, in my spreadsheet I have two columns, you know, if we do lender paid, this is how it's going to look like. If we do borrower paid, this is how it's going to look like. And we go over all of these options together. Once he says, "You know what? I like it. This is the option that I want." then it's when I say, okay, send me this, send me this, send me this, send me this, and let's do it.
0: Yeah, what I find too is that, okay, I like in this market right now, you know, there's a refinance boom because the rates are jumping up. People are asking a lot of questions about it. There was a purchase boom during this time period too. And, you know, I understand, you know, All the agents, sales agents are busy. All the lenders are busy. It's hard to help manage everyone. So a lot of lenders started becoming, because they're bombarded and stressed out, they said, just send me what you have. I'll take a look at it see if it works for you. For me, I actually like to ask questions just like you. I like to talk about like, hey, here's my client. Here's, Here's what there's going on. Can you make it work based on this story? What do you think you're, a lending company can do what kind of rates can they do and provide is it rate shopping in a sense yes but at the same time it's options shopping for the best option in the program that makes the most sense to the client because in the bay area when houses are hitting you know average like 1.8 2 million plus that eighth of a difference or a quarter a difference starts adding up especially when you yes. start hitting million dollars so i start asking okay based on the scenario for the self-employed borrower what can you provide and then when you start shopping that around to other lenders, you find out there's differences and you say, okay, great. And then next question is, based on it, can you do it? can you close the loan? And for me, you know, working with senior loan officers who can close the loans, understand the program and like people like you who have spreadsheets to quickly show the analysis behind it makes it so much simpler to actually have a good conversation, a deep analytical conversation because we understand, okay, here's exactly, we're saving our clients time, saving you time as a lender to not go through all the hassle. If your company cannot do the program and that makes it so much easier because you're providing additional layer of service that people don't realize that, that spreadsheet you make saves them so much time and it makes it easy. It says like in five minutes, I can tell you yes or no. And here's what it's going to look like. Does this work for you? Maybe, right? And then that's better than here. Let me send, spend 30 minutes to an hour sending you everything and it doesn't even work.
1: Right, right. And the other thing that can happen is because a loan is a process,
0: mm-hmm.
1: mid process, you can detect like, like, uh, you can detect uh, something that you can do for the borrower. I'll give you an example. We're doing a loan now for a young girl. She's buying a $2 million home. Like it's not two three million, but it's two million. At that level, mm-hmm. you know, even an eighth of a difference makes a difference. So in doing the loan, and we're mid through the loan, we are we are like getting back. We are like almost done now, getting to the process of the closing disclosure, of the CD. I was looking at her credit report again. I did like a like a quick a gap report, a quick like um, checking, mm-hmm. and I saw that she's only ten ten points away from seven twenty. And I thought, wow, if we get her to seven twenty, we get. This is now doing the loan. She already mm-hmm. agreed. She already like, said, let's go forward. Within the loan, I see that we can push it a little bit more, doing a rapid risk score of two or three items. We can get it to 720. And at 720, she gets an eighth less. That, okay. translates that, that eighth is going to translate in about $36,000 less
0: of down payment that she needs to put down. So we're going for it. That's a lot. And then that makes sense too. And that shows the quality of care and timing and effort you're putting into it, doing the, helping them with the loan.
1: Yeah. And and besides, in addition to the less, you know, the, the, slightly less amount of down payment. Mm-hmm. She's going to save a little bit more on the payment now because the payment, the interest rate is an eighth less.
0: Yeah. And I think one thing uh, lenders don't often talk about too is like, okay, when you start doing a loan, there's different variables they can actually put in. For example, you know, mes- you uh, answered about escrow impounds. If you impound it, some lenders give you a discount for impounding it and it's only for six months to a year maybe and then after that, you can cancel that part of it. But by getting an eighth of a difference on the rate because you impounded it or by paying payment payments in or by having bank accounts at certain levels these little differences and variables that you can add in but some lenders you know they might not say okay well here's all the little things you can do i can like, sit here and explain it to you but it's, sometimes it would be nice if it's just on a website i can pick and choose myself and that'd be nicer but i understand sometimes that's difficult because not all borrowers understand all the differences the variables on it but those are some options to think about as well
1: yeah, I mean, uh, for 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 you, Matthew, since you are so experienced in real estate, maybe for you will be it will be like that. <laughs> you can yeah, it on the website you can you can look at it. But I can tell you, most people, even successful business people, they are very successful in their field, but they are just as ignorant uh, about lending as anybody else as I was also when I first started. Um, and um, the other thing is this, especially for a business owner or an entrepreneur. It's about cash flow. Mm-hmm. If you have a, a payment of $4,000 going out every month versus a $6,000 pay- a month because of impounds, I always say, go to the 4000 because I put myself in the shoes of the self-employed. I'm self-employed. I'm a business owner too. Another thing is this. People look at the term of the mortgage and they think, oh my God, it's a 40-year mortgage. Oh my God, it's a 30-year mortgage. And the answer to that is no. That's what the mortgage will eventually be if you choose to. The fact that it's a 30- or 40-year mortgage doesn't mean that it has to be. And I usually enter into these conversations and send them a table. If you want to pay this loan in 10 years or in 15 years, get a 40-year mortgage anyhow. Why? Mm-hmm. Because if you, if you choose a 15-year mortgage, your payment is going to be like this. This is going to be like that. If you're pretty sure that for the next 15 years, your cash flow is never going to have a dip, then do it. But for most business owners, that is not going to be the case because your cash flow is going to be going up, going down, going up, going down. You don't want to be it when it's down that the 15-year mortgage is like, like, like you know, like killing you. So what you can do, you can take a 30 or a 40-year loan. It doesn't mean that it has to uh, last that long. And then you structure it as a 15-year loan. I'll give you an example. I'm not just making this up for, for, for the sake of the conversation. But let's say you're 15-year payment is $10,000 a month, which could be. And let's say your 40-year payment, 40-year is as close to interest only as it can be. 40-year payment, if we're talking about a $10,000 payment, could be something like 7000 And if you reduce the impounds, now we're talking about five or six. So you have five or six versus 10. Now, you take the 40-year loan. You divorce it from the impounds. Now we're talking about five or six. But you pay them the same payment as if you would, if you were having a 10, a 15-year loan payment. Mm-hmm. That means your loan, it starts to behave. It starts to behave. As long as you continue to do this, starts to behave as a 15-year loan payment. But yeah. if, let's say a year seven, year eight, you have a dip, you don't have to send them the 10,000 anymore. You can relax, sit back, send them the five or the six, and you're still okay.
0: Yeah, I let's remember talk about lo- that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Sorry. Oh. Sorry. Go ahead. Oh, since since I'm really into analysis and uh, understanding of the lending side of things, uh, a couple of things I even think about too. And to go a little bit further, um, you know, for the more analytical th- part of it, let's compare this. Let's say today's market. You have a 3.25, 3.375, 30 year fixed, and you know, the, for a single family house or whatever it may be for the scenario, right? And the option people can think about too is like, if you take a 2.75% seven one arm, that difference is over a 50 basis point, right? A 0.5%. Yep. And you imagine the difference on a $2 million house, the interest is quite comparable, uh, quite different, a uh, huge, right? Yes. So the thought process uh, of a savvy investor is that, hey, take 2.75 and you're t- saving 50 basis points you pay that, or you choose to have that thirty uh, that loan amortized on thirty, and you're just still paying. For example, like hey, the market, the real market is about three point two five percent. I'll treat this two point seven five like a three point two five, meaning that I'll pay additional principal per month at five hundred dollars more a month, for example. And over the course of seven years, even if the market changed in th- um, seven years from now, and let's say it went to four and a half percent thirty year fixed, and even if it went to four and a half thirty. Uh, 30 year fix the arm for that program seven years later it might still be in a three hopefully 3.25 or let's call it a four but if you blend the rate over the time period and you kept refinancing throughout the 30 year period and still paid it like a 3.25 overall i think you would save quite a bit of money because you saved on the interest for those seven years and you're paying it like a 3.25
1: Yes, yes. That that works very well for investors. When, when it's somebody that is buying a primary residence, mm-hmm. I, I always advise them to go a 30-year fix, mm-hmm. especially because of everything that is happening, not mm-hmm. just because of the recent events of the war, but even before that, you could see how rates, you know, when I started in, my, in business, I remember I got for this girl back in 2006, a six and a half rate. That was the deal of a lifetime at that time. Yeah. So comparatively speaking, we're still on the low range, but everything is going up and up. In the last couple of days, I tell you, a week and a half ago, I quoted, uh, this is a W2 employee uh, person. I quoted a residence he wanted to buy at 3.3. The same loan yesterday, Mm -hmm. we were having a Zoom call, is 4.49. So basically 4.5. And rates will continue to go up. And in my personal opinion, they will never come back, at least within my lifetime. Mm -hmm to the levels that we are having now. So if the if the business owner wants to buy a home for himself, I would say, you know what? I recommend you go with a 30 year fix because just inflation alone will pay for your loan. I yeah. will never forget the story. Remember the story I was telling you about the, the broker said, go and see this couple and they want to refinance. You can be the agent, the real estate yep. agent and the broker and make double commission. Yeah. He told me the story. He said he was from Mexico. He says, you know, Alejandro, this is my first house and second house that I'm buying, the first house I bought it was in Mexico. When I bought it in Mexico, it was 50,000 pesos. This is in the 80s. It was such an unbelievable amount of money, I don't know how I did it. Then Mexico went through a a devaluation. And then the 50,000 pesos, even though I still owe them, became so little. In two months worth of salary, I just paid off my mortgage. Now, this story may seem unusual, especially from somebody that in the US, because the US have never gone through this period. You know, I'm from Chile. I remember in 1973, we went through that period. I remember when the currency was a thousand and then it was devalued to one, meaning that one of the new currency became a thousand of the old currency. So I've seen this in my lifetime and I heard it from other people. I believe we're going through a similar process. It's not going to happen tomorrow. Uh, Martin Armstrong, I don't know if you know about Martin Armstrong. He's, he's, no. he's an economist. Mm-hmm. I follow him. you know uh, He's a wonderful economist. He predicts this is going to happen by December of 2032. Okay. So because of rates going up already as we can see, and because of all of these dangers which I have witnessed in my lifetime, Unless you're an investor and you, unless you have a particular goal like you, you know, on, on this property, I'm going to buy with an arm, I'm only going to hold it for seven years, then I'm going to sell it. If it's your personal residence or if it's a home that for now, you may change your mind, that for now you want to keep, I would just recommend go with an arm, inflation alone, I mean, go with a fixed rate, mm-hmm. inflation alone is going to pay for it.
0: Yeah, I agree with you too on that, especially when it's your primary residence and if it's your first house or something that you're going to keep for quite a while, then you can, ha- you should take that option. Cause right now the rates even today are so low that it's going to be, it's unbelievable. My first loan was 6.5 for 6.25% when I first started real estate. So I remember that. And, and that and, was
1: a good one. I bet you that was a good one at the time.
0: Yeah, it was, a, and it was an arm too, but then the rates kept dropping. I refinanced a couple of times, but you know, knowing the market, knowing the timing, it made sense. Right. But for today... Today's market, these rates are unbelievable and it's still super low, even at three, even at four is still relatively low, even though the price of houses are higher, inflation will come in mind and over the next years and with everything going on, it'll, it'll keep climbing. So I, I definitely get that too. Can you share some examples of some bad mortgages people should kind of watch out for?
1: In my opinion, the bad mortgage is the undisclosed mortgage. Because I've also come from the real estate background, like you do, you know that in real estate the number one rule is disclose, disclose, disclose.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I've seen that uh, usually the lending in- industry is really bad at at actu- actually actually communicating to borrowers. I don't know if you detected that, but usually emails from loan officers are very short. They are one liners. They don't explain anything. They're full of acronyms. You know, you get all these disclosures that. The purpose of the disclosures is to make it simple and to give you the information, but the disclosures have become so simple that they have, in my opinion, they have like, they are countering their own objective. Like take, for instance, the truth in lending. Truth in lending was a wonderful disclosure that told you how much you're borrowing, how much you're going to end up paying, what is your rate, what is the total rate. Somebody thought in the regulator that that was too complicated. And they changed it for this little tiny paragraph on page two of the loan estimate. In my opinion, that doesn't cut it. So there is a problem with disclosure and there is a problem with actually communicating. So to me, the bad loan is the loan that is not properly disclosed, even though it's legal, meaning the loan officer did send all the disclosures, he got all the signatures, he did everything perfectly legal according to what he's supposed to do, but he didn't explain it. You would not, uh, I mean, I cannot tell you how many times I have, Uh, borrowers that tell me oh Alejandro nobody told me that oh nobody explained me that yeah I got it but I didn't know what he meant I just signed it because I trusted the guy so Mm -hmm. disclosure 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 the bad loan is the loan that you're not it's not being properly disclosed also the bad loan is the loan where you as a consumer you know I understand you, you want the cheapest rate and you think that that is you think that that is a good loan but it may or it may not it depends on your circumstances so the bad loan is the loan that you go in You only trust the loan officer. You don't read anything. You just sign everything. And then you don't put a lot into it because you think, and I had this Apple just for this podcast. You think it's like going to the supermarket and buying an Apple. So you bought it. You got it. You paid a good price for it. So who cares? That is the bad loan in my opinion.
0: Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think you know, before people I saw too, they didn't understand like, okay, your total loan and what's the back end cost of everything going on because you got a great rate. You don't know if they put the, actually the additional charges into the mortgage itself and you're paying it at the rear. So that people didn't understand that. I'm like, what do you mean at the rear? I'm like, no, look at your price. Your loan amount changed from this to this. You got a better rate, but they actually put all the fees into the loan itself, and they didn't disclose that to you. And they're yeah. busy, but they should disclose everything you know, so you know what you're getting into. That yeah. comes with it's, the education. It's, it's disclosed on the forum, Yeah, but but nobody pointed out to you. Look,
1: you you want to look at here, and this is what these numbers mean.
0: Exactly. So that's something to be aware about. Just like being educate yourself, look at all the numbers, make sure it makes sense, make sure they're helping explain to you what you're getting into before you sign it. It's easy to docu sign everything, it's easy to click the button here, here, and here, and not read any of it. But that's not the point of it, right? It's a huge loan that you're taking accountability for.
1: Correct. Correct. And the other thing, the other thing that I would say, the other bad loan, I remember this lady. She called me. She was, I never talked to her except in this one phone call. And she said, Alejandro, I was recommended that I talk to you by, 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 by my lawyer. He said, I should call you. I have this problem. I have this loan. I'm signing the loan documents. And here it says that the lender, and there is only one bank that does this. The lender says that they can change the terms of the loan whenever it's needed. Oh. And I thought, it does he does it say that? He said, yes. And I said, well, did you talk to your loan officer? And she said, yes, I did. And what did he say? Well, he said that not to worry, even though that clause is there, it has never been invoked. Okay. Doesn't Mm -hmm. mean it's forever. But uh, I said, well, you realize that if you sign this, even though it has never been invoked, it could be invoked in the future. Mm -hmm. And she go, yes, but this is what I noticed. People, when they get to the closing table, they're so sick of the loan. They They have gone through an ordeal, through a nightmare. They just want it to be over. And if over meaning signing this, even though that it's not the perfect thing, they will sign it anyhow. And yeah. I always counsel don't do that. If you get to the signing table and the, it's not what you wanted, or you have second so- thoughts, don't sign it. Nothing is going to happen. You're not really committed until you sign the loan documents.
0: Exactly. And you know, the three day of refusal for the refinancing side, but still, I mean, you still got to think about it. Most people just say, forget it. I'm already done. I'll figure it out later. If something happens, I'll figure it out later. But later it hurts sometimes too.
1: Yes. Yes.
0: Okay. Um, before we wrap it up, too, one lo- other question, too: How do people use this money to create wealth and prosperity in their communities? How do you see ah, that?
1: That is a fascinating topic, especially needed right now. Have you ever heard about public banking?
0: A public. Which one? Public banking. Pu- no.
1: Public banking. No, uh, I, okay. I'm not going to take the credit for this because I didn't invent this. I didn't create this. But but there is a lady called Ellen Brown. He, she wrote a book called The Web of Debt. And basically I'll give you a very quick example. I went to a seminar, I never forget this seminar. It was hosted by Grant, Grant, Grant Cardone. I don't mm-hmm. know if you heard of Grant Cardone. He's a yeah, motivational speaker. Really well. Yes. And then he took a few people from the audience. He gave them a $100 bill and he said, "Okay, circulate the $100 bill among you. There were like five people. You sell something to him, you pay him $100 and you do it." So the $100 bill started on person number 1. I ended up in person number one again. And then Grant Cardon asked a simple question to the audience. He said, how much money was it generated? Everybody went, everybody looked at the $100 bill and said, well, the $100 bill. And he said, no, mm-hmm. this is a $500 economy because every time the $100 bill changed hands, it created value. Because this person sold it to this person, sold it to this person. Every time it changed hand, it created value. Even though it's the same $100 bill, it creates value as it goes around. This is what happens with our money. And like I said, I'm not taking credit for this. It's Mrs. Ellen Brown. She said, if you have a community, you have a city, and this could be a small village, it could be a big city, it could be a humongous city, it could be a whole state, or it could be a whole country. If you have a community, let's take a, a, a town, a very small town somewhere in, the, in California. And the city is receiving all these tax dollars from people. And they have an account at a very big bank in Wall Street. That money doesn't stay in the community, goes away. Then when the community needs services, they need uh, maybe, uh, they need to raise some money. They need to borrow it at a cost from an outside entity to the community. Now, this system worked beautifully when we were all integrated, uh, when commerce and everything had a certain uh, a modicum of rationality, but because things are being so crazy and they're gonna be even more crazy, you know, if you read Martin Armstrong, you'll see what I'm talking about. In my opinion, we have to go local. If everybody keeps their money local, what happens is the same $100 bill circulates around the community, circulates around the community creating value. When you export a $100 bill someplace else, now you need to borrow it at a cost. When yeah. you create a public bank, which is a bank for the community, you don't need to do that. And this is how America became prosperous from the very beginning till today. So that's in a nutshell the concept of public banking. So when you, there is another a book that is amazing. It's called The Last 5,000 Bless You, The Last 5,000 Years of Debt by a name by Mr. Grab, Grabber, I believe. Uh, he he follows the interest rate from like the Sumerian civilization, the first civilization in the history of, of this earth till today. And then you see that virtual money has always existed. Actually virtual money has been the number one mode of money that has been in existence. You see that in England, they use these like little sticks, you know, wooden sticks as money for over 400 years. That is what built the British empire. So this whole concept of public money, this whole concept of who is handling your currency has a tremendous relevance. So basically to answer this long story, just to tell you that to create value in local communities, which is what we need to do now. So we're not the effect of all of these, you know, up and downs of the general economy. It's like, we have to go local, you know, shop locally. You know, if you want to buy a coffee and if you have a mom and pop coffee shop there, go there, don't go to, to the big local chain, you know? If you don't like the mama and pop, go there and say, hey, you know, why don't you improve this? Why don't you improve that? And now I'm going to come to you all the time instead of going there. It sounds simple. It sounds like, it sounds like um, you know, I hear this all the time. Oh, what can I do? I'm just a person. I cannot change the world. But yes, you yeah. can. Every one of us can change the world one person at a time.
0: I agree, I think like you know, like voting you have the right to vote, you can do that, you can shop local and by shopping local, you can definitely impact the community because when you shop local and they shop local and they at the x percent, like you said, it goes around and around and helps everyone go through with that, yeah one last question before we wrap it up, what do you think the market's gonna do in twenty twenty two right now for on the lending side and in the interest rates you think it's gonna jump six times this year? I don't know if it's going to jump six times, but I can tell you in the last couple of weeks it has jumped about
1: seventy-five basis points to to a point. That's a lot. Can, yeah, that's a lot. I can tell you also that there is this ocean of money everywhere in the world that is getting nervous right now, mm-hmm. and even and this ocean of money is coming into the U.S. You may yeah. think, well, you hear all these things, well, the dollar is going to collapse and all that, but not yet. We have to wait till December of two thousand and thirty-two. All this ocean of money has nowhere to go right now. That's why mortgages have been so cheap. The only place they can go, they don't trust the US government anyhow for, for, you know, so they are investing in mortgages. So we have this ocean of money wanting to invest in mortgages and that's one pressure. The other pressure, we have the Federal Reserve trying to jump the rates. So it's gonna be very volatile. Rates are gonna continue to go up, but this ocean of money seeking a return on investment is what is depressing them, is what is keeping them still at bay and still at historically low rates.
0: Yeah. And then you think that's going to change the housing market too? Yes.
1: It's changing it now. Actually, Mm -hmm. I'm doing an offer. Not not me. I'm not the realtor, but I'm the Mm -hmm. the lender. This couple is putting an offer. Two weeks ago, they wanted to offer 1.3. We had a Zoom call last night. They cannot go beyond 1.1,
0: 1.150.
1: And I told them, don't worry. This is not only your problem. Every single person putting an offer is facing the same dilemma as you are right now.
0: Yeah, you're losing that power of you know um, your ability to your purchasing power ability because as the rate keeps uh, changing a quarter point up and more and more you're losing hundreds of thousands of dollars of buying power. So I tell my clients like really consider where you want to be your goals and it's time to like consider buying now before the rates keep changing and you're going to be priced out if you're at the maximum price points where you're pushing it. And in this market today, even in one of the houses I just had this week, we had 260 groups come by. We had 80 people download disclosures. We had over 29 offers. They oh went way over. And now it's still getting harder, but timing of everything really matters and understanding your local market, what you're doing and when it makes sense to move uh, really plays a big impact with the rates going on.
1: It does, it does, <laughs> Matthew. You're completely correct.
0: Yeah, cool. How do people reach out to you and learn more and connect with you regarding loans and scenarios? And you serve in um, California?
1: Yeah, c- c- California. We got licensed in Florida, so we can do Florida yeah. and, and California. Cool, and how do you reach out to you? The best way is to email me. You can email me at the email that you see there on the screen, or you can do at info at prosperitylending.us. That is the best way to do it. Info at prosperitylending.us, or you can just email me directly at Alejandro. Okay prosperitylending.us.
0: Cool. Uh, thank you guys so much, Alejandra, for being on the show and sharing your experience with us and sharing us about the lending um, best practices for lending and understanding the real side of the mortgages. Uh, for everyone out there, thank you so much for being on the Truth About Real Estate podcast. We'll see you guys in the next one. Have a great day.
1: Thank you, Matthew.